Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Casey Putney, Vice President of Leadership Development for the Business Ethics Alliance. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Veteran Casey Putney is the Vice President of Leadership Development for the Business Ethics Alliance, which seeks to build leadership, strengthen organizations, and elevate Greater Omaha by catalyzing an environment where the discussion and practice of ethics is encouraged and expected in the local community. Casey is a John Maxwell Certified Leadership Speaker, Coach, and Trainer with a Master's Degree in Organizational Leadership from Bellevue University, a Certification in Business Ethics from Duke University, as well as certifications in diversity, equity, and inclusion, safety, and Lean Six Sigma. Casey's career in the United States Air Force helped him understand the implications of high-pressure expectations and relentless deadlines, having held a top-secret security clearance, serving as director of personnel within the Nightwatch program, working within the National Airborne Operations Center, supporting the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense. Casey also served as an organization development manager with public and private organizations, and for over 20 years has focused on the study and application of training and development and leadership principles. Casey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. You were raised in Southern Missouri, and I wonder if you just paint a picture. Tell us about your childhood. Yeah, I was, I was uh, raised in Southern Missouri, born in Oregon. Um, my mother and father divorced when when I was really young, and um, we, we moved to Southern Missouri, about two and a half hours south of St. Louis. I, I always joke that I could throw a rock from my, from my yard into Arkansas. So certainly down in Southern Missouri, was raised uh, as an only child to a single mother in the 1970s. So, you know, not, not a lot of opportunity for single mothers in the 1970s. My mother just did absolutely uh, wonderful. Um, if I have a good work ethic at all, it is because I watched her uh, literally claw and climb her way to a really fruitful and and wonderful, successful career, um, just trying to make things work. I saw her drive auto parts trucks and uh, work in you know department stores all the way to carving out a really cool career with the telephone company, AT&T, Southwestern Bell. I think it's been called any any number of things. But yeah, Southern Missouri is, is where I got to start. Are you still in touch with, and were you at that time still in touch with your father? No, uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, I, I never saw him again, except for one time when I was 16. Uh, we, went, we went to Oregon on vacation and uh, my mom walked up to this back of this pickup truck and just said, hey, uh, his name was Bud. Uh, hey, Bud, this is your son, Casey. And Casey, this is your dad. I'll let you guys talk. Literally. Um, no warm-up, uh, nothing. He suffered from alcoholism. Uh, really, 
from everything I hear was a pretty nice guy. There was times where he'd give you literally the shirt off of his back. And then there's times, right, where that cross that he had to bear, that that monkey on his back, whatever the saying is, right, the, the alcoholism piece would really take away all happiness that he had in his life. Um, so, no, I had no relationship with him whatsoever. Um, I met him that one time. Um, not to sound like a stereotypical story here, but he actually uh, got drunk, passed out that day. Um, so I only got to hang out with him for a little bit. And then I never heard from him again until I was in my 30s and I called him. Just needed to put some things to rest, I, I believe, and just needed to say, hey, man, I forgive you and I'm not, I'm not mad at you anymore. Um, because for so many years, I think I had carried that with me, um, that played into my insecurities, that played into how I saw myself and the things that I would do and the things that I would be afraid of doing played into how I saw myself. And um, so, yeah, just having that conversation with him was important. I think we talked twice on the phone. Um, he has since passed away um, and hopefully he's found some kind of peace now. You mentioned the word insecurities. I'm wondering if you have any stories or memories or experiences that illustrate to you now as you look back um, incidences in your childhood that actually you know shaped those insecurities or you can see that in yourself as you look back at your childhood or if you see a different person when you look back at your childhood and your teenage years? Yeah, wow, that's a great question. Um, schools were different back then. Um, so for instance, they used to have a lot of father Sundays in schools. So I have this vivid memory of I had to have been around third grade and they were having a father's Sunday and you were making some kind of wooden car and you would push around the hallways and so forth. And I actually asked the janitor if he would participate uh, in my father's Sunday. And uh, he, of course, said no. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that just illustrates that um, for me, I think I always felt a little odd, um, a little out of place. Like I wasn't like, I wasn't like everybody else. Um, I, I wasn't like all of the kids that had, that had their fathers around to, you know, to compound that we grew, I grew up uh, relatively poor. Um, we started in uh, housing developments government housing and then moved into trailer parks. Trailer parks was a move up for us um, to HUD homes. And then eventually when, you know, I saw my mom buy her own home. But I think throughout my childhood, certainly it was um, just me feeling a little bit um, out of place, insecure and unsafe. And I think that then led me to making some decisions in regards to friendships as I got into high school where I gravitated towards people that could then identify with my socioeconomic standing and, and folks that maybe didn't have uh, both parents around, especially fathers. As I look back on those, those, those group of friends that I was running around with, our stories are very similar. So we understood each other. I think we had the same insecurities and quite honestly, probably the same anger. Uh, towards 
towards society, towards people that had the things we didn't have. Um, so I certainly think that that helped to generate all of my decisions um, growing up, all the way up into my 20s. You joined the Air Force, I think, when you were 23. So yes. it, it's not as if it was straight out of school. Right. It's not as if it was motivated as a, a direct intentional career path through college into the service. I feel like there's a story of motivations and experiences that led you into the Air Force. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about what it was that drew you through life and into the Air Force. Yeah, I, I um, you know, I graduated high school and uh, completed my second senior year of high school, mind you, um, just because I wasn't focused. I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do, and I didn't care um, about school, to be quite honest with you. But I did what you're supposed to do. I enrolled in college right in out of high school. And of course, uh, that didn't last long. I dropped out or flunked out. You can decide how you want to define that. But so I was a little bit lost again, and I ended up, um, I had moved away a little bit. Um, you have to understand my mom and I, you know, in my 12 or 13 years of schooling, we probably moved eight or nine times um, as my mom was clawing her way to, to create a better life for us. Uh, that would cause us to sometimes move to where the next best job would be, especially within the phone company. So as I, the college experience was failing, I moved back down to where I had grown up um, into that southern part of Missouri. And uh, I can vividly remember looking around and realizing that me and those same friends, uh, we were trying to do the same stuff that we had done in high school, just running around and doing the same stuff. And I had this, this internal feeling that there was more for me that I was um, not better than them or better than any person. I was better than the decisions I was making for myself. I didn't know exactly what that meant, um, but I knew I was better than what I was doing for myself. And I met this young lady and uh, actually explained all of that to her. And she, it was a unique experience because she said, like, I'm feeling the same thing. She was feeling the same thing. And, uh, to today, I've been married to her for 27 years. 
Um, that started a relationship with her. Her name is Shannon. Um, we moved up to St. Louis. She got a job with TWA Airlines as a reservationist. And again, though, um, we were living in an uh, apartment with no locks uh, in one of the worst parts of St. Louis. And we had no food in the refrigerator. And I'll say that again. We had no food in the refrigerator. Uh, we were going hungry. She weighed approximately 95 pounds. Again, I, I just felt like there was more for us. We had no furniture. We drug in a, a couch out of the alley. That was our only furniture. I just felt like there was more. And I, and I, I was in love. And I knew that I wanted to create a life for her, for us. So I had to make a decision. The military had always been in the background, but truthfully, my insecurities kept me from pulling that trigger and actually joining the service. So I decided I needed to do something and it was either going to be the military or a truck driver. I did some research on truck driving and I thought, oh man, they're away from home way too much. I don't want to be away from home that much. So I joined the military um, in which, you know, I was gone over 200 days a year. That shows you the quality of decisions I was making um, um, at the time. But that's really what led me to the military. It, it really is honestly kind of a love story that, that led me um, to the military. It's certainly this belief in myself that I could do more, but also driven by um, this really innate desire to create a life um, with this woman that I had fallen in love with. Was it a love story with the military? I'm curious about your experiences with the Air Force and, and in particular, how those experiences shaped who you are. You were serving for quite a long, I mean, yeah, many, many years. years. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a full career with the Air Force. It was a love story on on some days and other days, um, it wasn't, I, you know, that, it, that is a, that is a tough life, uh, serving in, in the military. My career field was aircraft maintenance. You know, I got assigned my own airplane with my name on the side and everywhere that plane went, um, me and my team went, um, we traveled the world. I got to see the world. It was fantastic. I walked the great wall of China. How many people get that opportunity? Um, just absolutely fantastic. Um, but man, you know, if you look at my family videos, I'm not in any of them. I'm not in the Christmas videos or the anniversaries and birthday videos. Um, so certainly there's a cost that you have to pay to do anything really rewarding. And my service in the military was truly rewarding, but there was certainly a price that I had to pay and my family as well. Um, I didn't necessarily love working on airplanes. I'm, I, I didn't love that. You know, I, I worked with individuals that could literally uh, listen to an airplane over the phone and tell you what sounded wrong. Like they were just amazing. I was never that guy. I, I had to get into the books and really figure things out. Um, but what I did discover was this passion for leadership inside the military. The Air Force military is a melting pot where you bring people together from every religion, socioeconomic standing, every, everywhere around the country and learning how to bring those kinds of teams together and really, really gel and move towards a common goal was something that 
uh, I fell in love with really fast, really fast inside the military. My first supervisor, his name was Rick Rigsby. Uh, my very first performance feedback. So I had been in with him now maybe six months and he wrote leader among his peers on my feedback form. And I went and I asked him, uh, Rick, what, what in the world does this mean? I, I had no idea what it meant to be a leader. I, no one had ever accused me of being a leader in any form or fashion. And he did maybe one of the most powerful things that's ever been done for me. And that he said, you, you don't know what a leader is? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, go figure it out. He didn't provide me the answer. He challenged me and then would consistently have conversations with me about what I was learning and what I was figuring out, what I was reading. And that began the lifelong journey of uh, trying to figure out what leadership meant for me. So how did that journey into leadership manifest itself during your service and, and perhaps setting you up for your exit? I speak with a lot of folks that facilitate trainings in regards to leadership development. And um, one of my favorite things to do is talk with young folks that really are saying, I want to facilitate, I want to train, I want to get up in front of people and, and speak about the things that you speak about. And my advice to them always is to first go lead teams before you begin to read all of these books and before you try to teach anyone anything. Uh, go lead, go fail, go succeed, go try things, go, go solve problems, go figure out how to have honest conversations and, and build meaningful relationships. Um, that's my very first challenge to anyone. And, and that's what I did in the military. Um, you know, there's all kinds of professional development opportunities uh, inside of the, the military. They take developing leaders to a whole new level. While I was going through those classes and those development opportunities, I was also researching and reading, and I began to try to implement the things I was learning as I began to see myself as a leader. I, I, I learned really early on that I read somewhere that, hey, you don't have to have a position to be a leader. So here I am, relatively young in the military with no positional authority or influence whatsoever, but I began to try to figure out how could I capture influence without position? And I began to discover some things and began to develop myself as a leader. And those traits then followed on as I, as I gained position, as, as I stayed in and got promoted. And, and it just began a, a continuous journey of trying new things and what works, what doesn't work, trying to figure out how how do I create the kind of environment that all of these folks, all of these folks deserve? Along the way, I took a training job in the military where I stopped working on airplanes and began teaching how to do uh, some of the aircraft maintenance pieces. But my niche was really about how do you become a supervisor? How do you connect with individuals? How do you build relationships? How do you really create these high functioning teams? Um, I knew at that point that this might be something I want to do as I eventually leave um, the military. And, and so as I was leaving the military, I really began looking at training and, and learning and development opportunities. Let's go to work. Cause I'm tripping. Got 
give up and fall Rise above it all Need all my challenges and search for my strength I defeat them all I'm never ever gonna hide no more I come to love myself again Yeah For all the things I didn't know The pain, the hurt, I let it go So I, I want to ask about that transition. You know, how did you, um, how was that adjustment into civilian life and um, not necessarily the corporate world, but, you know, the, wor- the world of civilian workplaces as opposed to the military? You know, one of the things I, I can't speak about the military without mentioning is it wasn't just um, my opportunity to experiment and learn. It was also an opportunity to be mentored. And I had some of the most amazing mentors and leaders. I, I've learned from bad leaders. I've learned how not to behave. But man, I was so fortunate to have some really dynamic individuals that really helped me find potential in myself. They impacted my life. That's the greatest thing I can say about anyone is if you impacted the life of someone else. And they certainly impacted my life. They challenged me, uh, several of those folks challenged me to begin preparing for life after the military uh, five years before I thought I would leave. So I really began thinking about what life would look like after the military well before um, I ever really started pursuing uh, leaving or applying for positions. I began to look at industries. I began to figure out uh, gaps that I had. Um, within my professional experience, and how will I market myself? How will I define who I am? And what does that transition look like? Transitioning out of the military is such a unique experience in that it's not just a career change. You have to think about your entire language changes. Um, the military has all different kinds of acronyms and, and languages, and we can say things in our teams that we cannot say um, outside of the military, all the way down to your dress and appearance. For 20 plus years, I knew what I was wearing every single day. And all of a sudden I'm leaving and I have a choice now. Like I can choose to wear what shirt I want and what pants I want and what colors and, and so forth. Um, so that's, that's a huge piece of it. There's all kinds of controls and structure inside of the military that doesn't exist outside. I transitioned really, really well. I was really fortunate. And I think, certainly, I think luck plays a little bit of that. But I was also really prepared. I'm sure you could spend a lifetime and, and never really get to a complete answer. But so far as you're able to offer insights, what would you share as regards what leadership is and what mm. being a leader comprises? Mm. I don't believe there's one answer. I, I, think, um, I think as a leader, you adapt based off of what the challenge is, what the struggle is, what the mission is, what the strategy is. There's so much we could talk about, but I do have an answer, I believe. 
I think that it all comes down to this. It's about impacting the lives of others. Now, there's all kinds of mechanisms and philosophies and theories and ways that we do that. There's not one way to lead. All of us lead differently based off of our experiences, who we are as people, our character traits. Some folks lead with humor. Um, Some folks don't. But it all comes down to measuring how we impact the lives of others. I believe that to my core. Um, John Maxwell has this saying, and I'll probably mess this up. He says something along the lines of, um, as I get older, I'm realizing that I don't know nearly as much as I thought I did. But the things that I do know, I'm absolutely positive about. And I believe that. In our quest to try to define this meaning of life. I mean, how many millions of dollars is spent every year for us to try to figure out what the meaning of life is and likewise what leadership is. And I think it's all the same. It's about helping other people. It's about impacting the lives, the lives of others. I stand by you when you're falling When the river is calling I said I love you forever We can make it together I've heard you talk about um, leaders that are inspirational, particularly favorites of yours. And you've mentioned leaders like Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And these are undeniably inspirational and and worthy figures to admire as great leaders. Uh, But it's interesting to me that those choices are all mid 20th century African-American men. What is it about that commonality that made you pick those three individuals? Yeah, I, I, again, I I think it comes back to how they impacted the lives of others. Um, Those individuals, A, were willing to sacrifice. There's a, there's a piece of moral courage that exists there, right? Where you're, you're willing to pay the price in order to see other people reach their potential. That's in essence what we, we should be as leaders. Whether you're leading an organization or a community movement. Um, look, I always say you can have anything you want. You can have anything you want as long as you identify and are willing to pay the price. You have to know what you have to give up in order to have what you want. If you want to galvanize a city, a community, a country, there's going to be a price to pay. And those individuals on a very large scale, uh, were willing to pay 
some extreme uh, price, an extreme price for the change that they wanted to see in the world. That is very inspirational to me. And, and it truly, I think, speaks to how I view leadership. I don't know that it has anything to do with the fact that they're African-American men. It's just the fact that uh, they really stood up and were willing to pay the price for, for what they believed in and, and how they wanted to impact the lives of others. You mentioned the phrase moral courage. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting phrase to um, explore a little bit further. And uh, there you are well into your first year working with the Business Ethics Alliance. What are you trying to achieve with the Business Ethics Alliance, as in you personally? Um, what are you hoping to achieve? You know, what, What's drawing you, what's inspiring you to do this work? At, at the very base of everything, at the very foundation, it's about impacting the lives of others. Um, when, you know, I had, I had lost actually my job during COVID. I was an organizational development manager with a company here in Omaha called Travel and Transport. A fabulous organization, just fabulous ethical leaders um, within that organization. And uh, COVID hit, you know, they're a travel organization. You lose 98% of your business overnight. Um, They ended up selling the company and that new company didn't bring us along. So I was at home doing some coaching and consulting and was fortunate to be in a place where could be somewhat selective about where I wanted to go. I was having almost a similar feeling um, that I had had in my 20s when I was saying to myself then, it's time for something new, Casey. You're, it's time to, do, to create something more than the decisions you're making. I was having similar thoughts um, here in that I was like, okay, I don't know that I want to go back to just four walls and teach leadership development. There's nothing wrong with that. I, at this stage of my career, I was looking for something a little bit different. I was wanting to increase the reach of my impact, my influence. So I got a call about the Business Ethics Alliance. And what I saw immediately was an opportunity to impact a community. You know, the the conversation around ethics is very much around, normally around compliance, about codes of conduct, um, legalities, and so forth. And I, I certainly think that's always you know, a a very strong foundation in regards to the conversation about ethics. But I, I also think that we can extend that reach into how we impact the lives of others. I, I always say, if you've hear, if you hear me talk in five different places, you'll hear me mention 10 times that I believe we all deserve to be valued, respected, appreciated, and heard. Uh, Not only do I think we desire, we deserve, we deserve and desire to have those things. I've been a part of organizations where I didn't feel those things. And it impacted my mental health. It impacted my physical health. It impacted my family. I, I was not the best father and husband that I could be because of the experiences I was having inside of my professional environment. So here at the Alliance, we've talked about that openly. And, and quite honestly, everyone we speak to uh, can can resonate with that and say, yeah, I've I've felt that, I felt that as well. So we what we want to do now is is help a community of leaders truly understand how to create cultures where people feel valued, respected, appreciated, and heard. And in doing so, Stuart, efficiencies will increase and and new ideas will happen and the balance the budgets will be balanced. 
But more than that, you'll send people home happy and healthy, better prepared then to reach their potential as mothers, fathers, husbands, and wives. So I believe ethical leadership not only impacts the culture of the organization, I believe it impacts the culture of the family. I believe that you can have an impact on the entire community. If you're going home happy and more fulfilled and your relationships with your family is at, at a level 10, what kind of neighbor are you? What, what, what kind of partner are you to nonprofit organizations that you're volunteering for? It, I just believe that the reach and the impact um, is immeasurable if we can get organizational cultures right. That's really what we're looking at here inside the Alliance. Um, certainly, the Business Ethics Alliance was, you know, was created with this idea coming from the Enron scandal that we can never have an ethical collapse like that. We never want to have an ethical collapse like that here inside of Omaha. And that is certainly something that, that we keep front of mind and we speak about. But there's always this other piece of the puzzle that we really want to bring the human experience into this and understand how ethical leadership can truly impact the lives of the folks that we, that we work with every single day. How have you translated those lessons connecting leadership and ethics, how you see in ethical dilemmas um, in your own life, how you've had to kind of wrestle with those for yourself? Yeah. Dilemmas are always um, really based on values, aren't they? Um, I mean, if you, the mask mandates, the vaccines, uh, those are certainly the things that exist in the front of mind today. It all comes down to values. And how I wrestle with that is um, really trying to understand um, if it's me personally, my values and where those values are coming from. Are they coming from insecurity? Are they coming from a place of overconfidence? Are they coming from a place of self-interest and then understanding, you know, what my values are towards my community, my neighbors, my society, my family, and understanding all of those things and helping me really make those decisions. I think that's true within our community. Now, when I say community, we'll, we'll broaden that out to our entire country. Um, where are your values? I think a lot of folks are making decisions based off of loyalty towards values that maybe are, are serving, you know, other parties. You know, I might make a, a decision based off of a value that is really towards my community. You might make one that's based off of your political party. So we're going to be at odds. Um, chances are we might very well be at odds because we're operating from a different, a different set of values um, and perspective. Again, I come back to conversations and relationships. I wish that we could have conversations about that and learn from one another. I think what we would find is there's not nearly the amount of monsters in our community that, that we believe there are. Um, I think there's quality individuals that exist within our community. I think there's people that mean well. I just think sometimes we don't slow down and think about values and ask ourselves some really tough questions about the dilemmas and decisions that we're, that we're facing. It's alright, I can make it home by myself I've got your words inside my mind 
That invitation you've extended to explore and share and interrogate our own and other people's values so that we can gain some insight and grow, that examination can be powered by shared stories and wrestling with scenarios. You use personal stories to illustrate uh, some ethical framing around your own life. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit of those, those stories just uh, by way of illustration of some of these issues. Wherever I go, I share stories. I think that's the Southern Missouri thing. Um, you know, I, I joined, let me give you a little bit of background. I joined the Alliance February of 2021 and was off and running immediately. Um, taught a four session uh, class consisting of roughly, what, 16 hours of lessons in March. So I hit the ground running and we were really doing some really wonderful things here. And in, um, I believe it was April, I was diagnosed with cancer. And certainly that was a shock to me, uh, to my, to my entire family. You you know, when you get diagnosed, um, they say there's a possibility that this could be cancer. They don't give you the firm answer. So now you have to sit for a few weeks or so and wait for further testing. For me, it was 10 days. I went through 10 days of um, the most emotional and mental turmoil that I've ever been through. I've deployed to countries where people want to hurt me and all kinds of things in the military and uh, living without a father and all, all kinds of challenges in my life. I don't know that anything compares to those 10 days where I had to question if this is it, have I done enough? Have I impacted enough lives? Have I helped enough people? Certainly the standard questions of how will my family be without me? And I'm a pretty positive thinking guy. Uh, I, I really do believe in the power of positive thinking and I, and I really do run towards every challenge, but those 10 days were tough. And the diagnosis came back that it was indeed cancer. So now I got to come to work and tell my new boss at my new job that I have cancer. You know, we have a training calendar here where I'm, I'm scheduled to speak throughout the year at different locations. And that's already filling up now as you know, we record this. It's early 2022. 
So I had to make some phone calls and uh, communicate with individuals um, about what I was challenged, challenged with and what moved me. Several of these organizations um, would say to me, you know, I would say to them, hey, I, I, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, I'll find you another trainer. I'll find you another speaker. And they would say to me, no, no, we don't want anyone else. We, we can't see anyone else coming into our organization and speaking. We'll wait for you. Um, I'm a part of the Business Ethics Alliance, and there's really a lot of attention paid to the word ethics, business ethics. That's where everyone goes, and we talk about what ethics means. No one asks me about the word alliance. And to me, as I walked through that experience, that's the word that stood out to me was that we're part of an alliance. To me, that's what makes Omaha unique is the values that we have here within this community, the Omaha metro area, uh, the values that we have, um, how we support one another. I walked away feeling like I was truly part of an alliance. And at the same time, with a renewed respect of how I count my minutes, how I spend my minutes, where do those minutes go? And I think to some degree, you see many folks asking those kinds of questions as we battle with the great resignation. Um, for me, I really recognize that I'm spending my minutes where I need to. Uh, I'm with a group of individuals that truly care about me. I go back to valued, respected, appreciated, and heard. Man, just imagine how I felt when I'm reaching out to folks and saying, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, I know that you've contracted, you've spent money. You've spent money for people to come in and, and teach about leadership and talk about experiences to your teams. I'll find someone for you. And for them to say, oh no, we'll wait. What matters now is you winning and getting healthy. We'll wait for you. Uh, man, I, uh, I felt valued, respected, appreciated, and, and definitely heard. It speaks to... Uh, this idea that what I speak about isn't just theory. Like I've experienced it. I've seen it. I, I've felt what it means to be valued, respected, appreciated, and heard. And every single person deserves to feel that. I felt it within a, within a city, within a community, but we all deserve to feel that even if it's inside of our very small organization with five people you deserve to feel those, those same things.
You've mentioned this foundational belief that everyone deserves to feel valued, respected, appreciated, and heard, which is the underpinning rationale for a podcast that you started and you uh, recently have been co-hosting. And it's called Leadership for Life. And obviously, I'd encourage people to dig back into some of the past episodes. It's enjoyable and fun to listen to. And I, I'm wondering, and this perhaps is a, a somewhat meta way to finish this podcast conversation, um, but to ask you, are there any particular stories or uh, experiences in curating and producing a podcast like that that, um, I don't know, just stand out to you? Um, well, I mean, whenever you're throwing together a podcast, it's, it's um, challenging. I, I will tell you this. I was teaching a class at Travel and Transport. It was a, a leadership group of you know, roughly 30 individuals within the company, emerging leaders, and we would bring them together. That program was called Pathfinders, developed by the amazing Jamie Kelly, um, who now works at Boys Town, who is just one of the most uh, quality individuals that we have inside of the Omaha community. Um, she developed this program. Uh, she trusted me to lead it. And um, when the program was over, I, I challenged folks, hey, continue your, your growth. Find that voice for you. Find the voice that resonates to you and don't let go. Continue listening to them. And they said, well, you're okay. You're the voice. How do we continue? And I said, well, no, no, I can't be the voice. This, this class is over. And they challenged me to start a podcast. And I said, well, I don't know anything about podcasting. I, I am not a tech savvy person. And they kind of said, like, listen, you, for six months, you've told us it's about impacting the lives of others and um, running towards your fears. Don't you think you need to do the same thing with this podcast? And I was like, okay, so you're using what I've said against me. Wonderful. So uh, I made an agreement that I would absolutely do that. So I started the podcast. When it first started, it was really um, me really getting on and talking about leadership, philosophies, curriculum, sharing my own experiences. And then somewhere along the lines, we changed the format where I brought in a friend and we began having conversations about life and leadership. And I think that felt uh, much more impactful to me than what I was doing in the first few lessons, uh, uh, episodes of the podcast. Um, what, have I, what have I learned? Um, so much, but I would share this. I shared this actually to the Pathfinders group. I'll share it here as well. This life that we're living, um, I, I really do believe this. This life that we're living is not just meant for us. Um, the experiences that we go through, the challenges that we endure, that we succeed in or fail at, are certainly meant to develop us and make us better people. But they're also textbooks for the people that come into our lives. They're an opportunity for people to learn from our experiences. I, when I used to teach leadership development early in my career, I would not share a lot of personal stories. And I had a mentor that really held me to that and said, well, isn't that somewhat selfish? You've gone through these experiences. How dare you not share them with folks that might be able to learn from them? That's why today I'm quite the open book. I, I will really share just about anything with anyone um, because I believe if I went through this and you can at all benefit from it, then 
then I certainly want to share it. I think that's the power of that podcast and this podcast. I think that's the beauty of this medium is being able to bring out people's stories so that others can, can learn from it. Listeners to the show may recall previous guests have included Dr. Bev Crocker, the founder of the Business Ethics Alliance, and Jacob Dalkey, director of Nebraska Medicine's Office of Healthcare Ethics. And I'd encourage you to listen back to their conversations. Podcasts are available at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. My guest today has been Casey Putney, Vice President of Leadership Development for the Business Ethics Alliance. Casey, thank you so much for being on the show. And in particular, as you've encouraged us all for sharing your stories and your insights. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. There's really not too many topics that that are off topic. I mean, I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty open to sharing. You can't take it to a place I won't be okay with. <laughs> no, I'm that's not, not a challenge. No, Stuart, I was going to say not I'm a... not taking that as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.